Yeah, we're going to jump into God's Word. If you weren't with us last week, uh, we started a really brief topical series on relationships. And so hopefully you guys were really helped by uh, Pastor Tim's message. He talked about God's love and our friendships. Uh, and he gave us a super long, really helpful handout uh, that hopefully you guys were able to think through, uh, even this week in, in some of your conversations and interactions with other people. Uh, well, for tonight, we're going to try to tackle the realm of romantic relationships. And uh, we're going to talk about a lot at once. We're going to talk about attraction, dating, and marriage all in one sermon. Um, and, <laughs> and for you guys, at least practically speaking, uh, your immediate concerns are probably going to fall into those first two categories, right? Like, uh, who should I think about dating or, or even in a dating relationship? Um, so that's where we'll spend a good chunk of our time. But we're definitely going to talk about marriage uh, because that informs the other stuff, right? And you guys know that. Um, honest confession as we start. Every time I do a relationship series, I'm always like, why did I do this? <laughs> like, I really regret it. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is because I think there's just so much to think about. And uh, there's just a lot to consider, and there's many aspects of dating. Um, and, I, I, like, a lot of it really comes down to wisdom issues, right? If you've ever had to think hard about this topic, uh, you've probably heard some of this wisdom, quote, wisdom, for yourself, right? And uh, the funny thing about dating advice, I think, is that you will hear all kinds of stuff, right? Like, you'll hear everything um, on, on one end of the spectrum, like, you can jump into this dating relationship without asking anyone what they think. Uh, for example, your college pastor. <laughs> and that's not good, right? Like, you should ask people. You should get counsel. You should get input. Um, but on the other hand, you can also ask an opinion from enough people, especially your friends, and eventually you're going to hear something that you like, right? Eventually you're going to hear something that you agree with and that you're going to follow. I think sometimes the things that people say about dating and relationships are even contradictory. For example, maybe you've heard before, uh, date for at least a year. And then other people say, hey, don't date for any more than a year. Or other people say, date exclusively in groups. And then other people say, hey, make sure you get enough like one-on-one -on -one time. Um, or people say, uh, you know, put like boundaries in place, right? And then other people say, don't try to follow everyone else's rules. Um, or, or people say, hey, spend lots of time together, and then other people say, be careful how much time you spend together. And I think, like, all of them might be true, um, and that's a confusing thing, right? And on top of all of that, uh, the Bible doesn't talk about dating, uh, or the Bible actually doesn't talk about a lot of things, for that matter. Uh, it doesn't have a category for dating. If you go through Scripture and you look at the different categories of relationships, um, I've identified five, okay? So biological family non-Christians, um, other believers, talks about singleness, and then talks about marriage or your spouse. And then if you want to even uh, narrow that down even more simply, you can think about it in terms of family, neighbor, and marriage. Okay, family, neighbor, and marriage. Those are the categories of relationships that scripture talks about. And so what makes dating confusing is not only that it's this kind of like, kind of unclear like intermediate state, at least in our eyes, between two categories. Uh, but we also bring these new expectations. We bring demands to this kind of relationship. We act as if in dating, the great command, right, to love your neighbor as yourself is suddenly subverted by romantic love. Like all of a sudden, that's not the greatest commandment anymore when you're talking about romance. And rather, it should be the other way around, right? How you love your neighbor uh, is more specifically applied in our dating. And so when it comes to attraction, dating, marriage, uh, there is a lot to know. There is a lot that has been said about it. And yet, the Bible doesn't give us super straightforward answers to what we're asking. At least not in the way that we might first want or we might first think. And so I think what ends up happening a lot of times is that we try to be smarter than the Bible. Right? We depend on, like, blog posts on the internet rather than the sufficiency and rather than the clarity of scripture. Uh, we turn to the counsel of other people before we decide to pray about it to God. And so as we start, I just want to challenge you guys on that a little bit. Okay, whatever like you think about dating, whatever your opinion is, your convictions are, 
what is your source when you want your questions answered about this topic? Where do you go? Where do you find wisdom? To whom and where do you go? And as you know, there is no shortage of teachers, right? Culture, entertainment, uh, maybe your parents tell you something about the kind of person to date, or your family, uh, or friends, or even Christian friends. Uh, maybe even the people sitting next to you, right? Or people at church, small group leaders. And for many of you, some of that information, some of that input uh, is like a little more obvious to discern. Some of that is uh, easier to sift through than others. For example, uh, the cult or entertainment will teach you, you know, like hookup culture. And I think we as Christians, we know that's not right, right? Or uh, people might say, you won't know what you're looking for until you date around a little bit. Right? And I think even as Christians, we kind of know that's not how dating works, right? But I think some other counsel might be a little more difficult to judge, especially when it comes from other Christians. Uh, for example, what if someone says to you, as long as your heart is right, then do what you want. Right? Is that good advice or not? Maybe, maybe not, right? It, it could be helpful. It could be very unhelpful. And so I guess what I'm trying to say in all of this is that navigating through this topic requires wisdom. It requires wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 24, 3 to 4, puts it like this. It says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So I think in that verse, wisdom and understanding and knowledge are all kind of the same things. Okay, that wisdom is not, not only knowing the right things in your mind, but it's being able to apply them correctly and skillfully in your life. And the proverb says that in this kind of picture of a house, right, wisdom must be the foundation on top of which everything else is built if you want to enjoy God's uh, blessings. Right? If you want to enjoy his, his precious and pleasant riches, then you need to have this foundation of wisdom. Uh, Jesus himself uses a similar illustration in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. You guys have probably heard this before. He says, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Okay, so the foundation that we are called to build on is God's word. And, and Jesus promises that if we build on that foundation, then you will be safe and you will be secure. Right? The hard parts of life will come and you will be able to live wisely. You'll still be standing. And so uh, really a lot of what I'm going to talk about tonight is wisdom. Right? It's learning to build on this foundation of God's word. Um, I want to frame our time using three questions. And I think I uh, just... In general, these three questions are helpful when you're thinking through like any sort of gray area or gray area issue or, or wisdom issue in your life. Okay, so the three questions are, what does the Bible say about it? What is the wisest choice? And then what do I want to do? Okay, what does the Bible say about it? What is the wisest choice? And what do I want to do? Um, and before we jump into our first point, let me just pray for us. I forgot to pray at the beginning, so let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, just time together to sit under your word and, uh, yeah, just as we just heard, we, we are in need of wisdom. If we want to enjoy the gifts that you've given us in this life, if we want to use them well and faithfully and skillfully, we need to learn from you. And so I just pray that our time together would be profitable, that uh, our thinking would be shaped by Scripture. And uh, yeah, even as we think about this really big topic of dating and marriage and romance, uh, that you would guide us and you would teach us. So help us to be humble, help us to be receptive to what you have to say. Pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's start, start with the first one. Okay, so what does the Bible say about it? And like we said earlier, Scripture doesn't really say anything explicitly about dating. Uh, dating just wasn't a thing back then. That's not how it worked. Uh, but the Bible does have much to say about marriage. Okay, for example, in the Old Testament, when you think about how Israel's sin and rebellion and idolatry was described, it was described often in terms of infidelity, right? Like adultery in this uh, relationship, in this marriage with God. Uh, 
Hosea is like a, a great example of that, right? God tells Hosea to like have this object lesson in, in which he marries an adulteress. Uh, in the New Testament, marriage is one of the frequent teaching points in Jesus' ministry and also in, in Paul's letters. And so the Bible has a lot to say about marriage, uh, and probably the most famous marriage passage is Ephesians 5, to 33. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, this is, will be one of the few passages we really camp out in for tonight, but uh, we'll be in Ephesians 5 for, for the time being. And as you're turning there, let me just uh, explain what's happening in this passage. So in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul gives instructions regarding the role of the husband and the wife. And the basis for these commands and the way that a husband and a wife should serve and love each other is Christ's marriage with his bride, the church. Okay, that's the reason for, uh, that's the basis for the roles that Paul assigns to husband and wife. And so we'll start with the wives. What role is given to the wives in God's design for marriage? Verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so in, in God's design for marriage, okay, the wife is called to joyfully submit to the leadership of the husband. To joyfully submit to the leadership of the husband. Now, I know that that is a loaded word. Okay, that word submit. But I want you to look at what Paul says in the surrounding verses. Okay, in verse 24, he says, just as the church submits to Christ, right? So submission is not just something that wives do to their husbands. It's what we as believers do as the church submits to Christ. Not only that, verse 21, he says that we are called biblically to submit to one another, right, from believer to believer, between each other, out of reverence for Christ. Okay, it's not even just on a human level. Think about it. Jesus himself submitted to the will of the Father, Okay, so I know, like, submission is kind of a loaded word. Uh, people don't like to hear it, but submission in Scripture is meant to be this beautiful thing. Now, what does a wife's submission look like specifically to her husband in marriage? Okay, well, it's not saying that you just give up, like, any and all independent thought. It doesn't mean that you, like, have no input or you have no influence on your husband, Submission doesn't mean that you as the woman are inferior to your husband. And it definitely doesn't mean that you put your husband on par with Christ. Okay, that, that is not what is meant by submission here. What Paul is talking about when he calls the wife to this joyful submission has to do with a heart posture. Okay, it's a voluntary yielding in love. A voluntary yielding in love. It's honoring the leadership of your husband. Uh, something really helpful that Pastor Kim mentioned to Bree and I when we were doing premarital counseling uh, was that, I guess he was mentioning this more to Bree, but that, that, that an important part of submission for the wife is trusting that God will bless your obedience to his design for marriage. Okay, it's trusting that God will bless your obedience to his design for marriage. And so when you get married, in, God willing, if you get married in the future, when you choose as the wife to, to voluntarily yield in love to the leadership of your husband, even if you don't agree with him, right, even if it's like a really stupid decision, when you choose to submit in those situations, you're saying, I trust God's plan for marriage, I trust his design for marriage more than I trust my own ability to make good decisions. Right, it, it's, it's trusting that through your obedience, God will bless your marriage because that's the way that he's designed it. Okay, so that's, uh, in a nutshell, that's the role for the wife. What about the husbands? Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Uh, verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And by the way, I hope you see that even by like word count alone, that more of the burden is intended to be on the husband rather than the wife. 
Okay, and, and specifically, Paul says that God's design for the husband is to sacrificially love and lead his wife. To sacrificially love and lead his wife, just as Christ sacrificially loved and gave himself up for the church. Okay, so guys here, before you like revel in the fact that God has designed for you to be the primary decision maker and leader of the household, realize what that leadership entails. It is supposed to be costly. Right? The way that you love your wife seeks the good of her at expense to yourself. It's hard. Making a sacrifice is hard. Uh, for example, it might mean that though you have the final say in choosing between like option A or option B, the right choice isn't always the one that you might want because you are called to sacrificially love your wife. And in my very short experience of marriage, let me just say that this is so hard. Okay, this is very, very difficult. Um, one thing that I'm still learning and that I'm still growing in uh, is that this goal of Christ-like love isn't happiness, but it's holiness. Okay, that's what Paul talks about in verse 26 and 27, right? It's in Christ's love that he's trying to sanctify his bride, the church. And so you can't measure love based on the result of happiness. You have to think about holiness. And I think, like, we understand this when it comes to God's relationship with us, right? God doesn't always just give us what we want. He gives us what's best for us. That's why we experience suffering sometimes. It's hard, but it makes us better, right? I think we, like, generally get that idea. But I think it's challenging to carry that over into our horizontal, interpersonal relationships. Uh, for me, especially marriage. Like, I understand that sometimes I am called to give up my own preferences uh, for the sake of Bree's happiness. But leading and loving like Christ also means that there are going to be times when a decision that I make won't make her happy. But it's the right one because it'll help her to grow in holiness. Right? And in those cases, like, neither of us are happy, so it sucks. Right? She's not happy, I'm not happy because she's not happy. But it's better for both of us because right? it's going to grow us in Christ-likeness. And in sacrificial love, as a leader, like, that is the decision that I'm called to make. And I have to be willing to live with those consequences out of love. Right? So like, it's so hard to do this, right? to sacrificially love. I'm called to consider not just her happiness, but her holiness. And so it means, again, that, that showing Christ-like love means that I need to make that decision that she doesn't want in that moment if it's going to be long, if it, if it's going to mean long-term Christ-likeness and joy. Now, why does God want marriage to look this way? And I think we've kind of already mentioned how uh, the husband's sacrificial love and leadership and the wife's joyful submission are this, like, analogy of Christ and his bride, the church, Right? We kind of know, oh, there's like a parallel between those. Uh, but I want you to see something in verse 31. Look at what Paul says. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, so in verse 31, he is citing from Genesis 2.24. And Genesis 2.24 is one of the go-to verses in the Bible on marriage. Uh, it's probably one of the first verses that describes marriage. Jesus himself mentions it when he's teaching on divorce uh, in Matthew 19, verse 5, and in Mark 10, 7, and 8. Uh, from Genesis 2.24, we learn that marriage originated from God, right? We learn this idea of, like, leaving and cleaving, that when you get married, you form your own family. Uh, we learn from that verse about the intimacy of being joined as one flesh. So there's so much about marriage that's already packed in that one verse. But if you keep reading, Paul says something that is very profound about marriage. That's the word he uses, profound. And, and specifically in its relationship to the gospel. Look at verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Hey, in the Bible, the word mystery isn't like your like Sherlock Holmes, like solve the puzzle kind of mystery. Uh, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it, re it refers to something that was once hidden that has now been revealed. Okay, something that was once hidden 
that has now been revealed. And so what Paul is saying here in verse 32 is that even from the creation of the world, right, marriage has always been around. But only in the gospel, only in Christ, understanding the relationship between Christ and the church, has the meaning of marriage been fully revealed. See, when Paul puts marriage and, like, Christ's relationship with the church together in this passage, he wasn't just trying to find, like, oh, what is the closest human analogy to describe Jesus and the church? Rather, Paul is saying that when, when God brought Adam and Eve together in that first human marriage, right, all the way in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, he didn't just do so arbitrarily. He didn't just say, I'm going to call this thing marriage. He had in mind Christ's love for the church from the very beginning. Marriage, even from the very beginning, had always been intended. It had been created, it had been designed as this pointer to something bigger than itself, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Namely, his love for his bride, the church. And it's out of that that God created marriage. And so what that means for us is that marriage doesn't exist to serve our own needs. Okay, marriage doesn't exist to unlock, like, the benefits that we don't get to have and enjoy as single people. Marriage doesn't exist to fulfill us uh, or to make us happy. Most significantly, marriage exists to put on display the gospel and the glory of God. That's why it exists. And so even in dating, the end goal isn't just marriage. Right? Of course, you want to date intentionally. Of course, you want to move towards clarity in marriage. But dating is about more than marriage. It is about worship and the glory of God, just as marriage is about worship and the glory of God. So marriage is an opportunity to display the picture of God's selfless love in the gospel. Um, so going back to those roles, right? A wife's call to submit joyfully to her husband is one way that she displays that selfless love. A husband's call to sacrificially love and lead is one way that he displays that selfless love. And so if that's what marriage is, then dating is a way of practicing that. Okay, dating is a way of practicing that. Now, to be clear, these roles in Ephesians 5 are given for marriage. Okay, so like God doesn't call you to submit to your boyfriend. It doesn't work in the same way. But in your dating, are you looking for ways to practice selfless love and Christ-like commitment? Are you looking for ways to practice the gospel? So that's what the Bible says about marriage. And that's not everything, but that's, I think, one of the main things. And I think we need that bigger picture in mind so that we remember what we're talking about when, we, uh, when we're talking about these topics. Right? We're not just talking about like, this human institution or this specific type of relationship. We're talking about the gospel, and we're talking about the glory of God. Now, kind of moving a little bit away from marriage, what does the Bible say about the kind of person that you should pursue in marriage? Um, and the answer to that is there's actually not a whole lot of like, absolute requirements that the Bible gives for the kind of person. Okay? Um, I've kind of identified two. One is they must be the opposite gender. Uh, and then two is they must be a Christian. Um, 2 Corinthians 6.14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Okay, so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that a Christian really has nothing in common with a non-Christian when it comes to uh, spiritual allegiance, when it comes to worship. That Christians and non-Christians are fundamentally incompatible, just as in his example, righteousness is incompatible with lawlessness, or light is incompatible with darkness. Okay, so I think that's pretty clear. They must be of the opposite gender. They must be a Christian. And besides that, Scripture actually gives us a lot of freedom when it comes to who you want to marry. Um, and maybe for some of you, that's a relief to hear. Uh, maybe for others of you, it rebukes your pickiness a little bit. Um, I remember back in the day, Pastor Kim uh, kind of boiled it down to two questions. He says, or he said, does he or she love Jesus? And is he or she breathing? <laughs> like, that's all you need to ask yourself. 
something else that the Bible clearly says about dating, um, so that's, that's what it says about kind of their absolute requirements, okay, about like uh, considering who to pursue in dating and marriage. Uh, something else that the Bible clearly says about dating, though maybe not in the way that you expect it, is that the will of God for you is your sanctification. Okay, and, and you're like, I, you didn't say dating in that sentence. Yeah, the will of God for you is your sanctification. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. And I bring up this verse because it is important to ask questions about God's will for your life. Right, and we're going to talk about this when we move to the wisdom uh, in our next point. Right? We, we should ask questions like, should I ask this person out? Should we start dating now or should we wait? But where we go wrong is when we start to think that the answers to these questions, making the right decision, choosing the right person, is the most important thing. As, uh, and we treat that as if the success of your entire dating or your entire marriage is going to depend on making that right choice. When we have that mentality, what is the assumption there? Well, it's that when you make the right choice, when, then the rest will be easy, right? The rest will be comfortable. The rest will be trouble-free, and you'll live happily ever after. But what is God's will for you in dating? And Paul says, it is your sanctification. Okay, that is God's will for you. It is not primarily about who or when or whether you choose to date. No, his priority for us is to be godly. It's to be growing, uh, it, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you marry this person or whether you marry that person or whether you never get married at all, God's will for you is clear and it is to grow in Christ-likeness. And so let's even like look at this verse specifically, right? First Thessalonians 4.3, Paul links the will of God and your sanctification with abstaining from sexual immorality. Okay, so if you're dating or even if you're single, how are you doing in that area of your life? before you even start thinking about dating, right? Before you even start asking questions about, oh, should I do this or should I do that? How are you doing with that aspect of God's will in your life? Or later in the same book, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so God's will for you is to be thankful. And why is that relevant? Well, what is the opposite of thankfulness? It's discontentment. And I think we all kind of know how discontentment is so relevant when it comes to dating and when it comes to relationships, All right? So again, before you start asking like these gray uh, area issues, which is good to ask, what about the things that are more clear? Are you growing in contentment and thankfulness? Because that's God's will for you in your life. Uh, one more thing before we move on to our next point. The Bible was never intended to be read like an encyclopedia. Okay, in other words, if you want to learn about marriage, you don't exhaust all that the Bible has to say about marriage by just flipping to, like, Ephesians 5 or all of the passages that just mention marriage. Rather, you have to consider all of the relational wisdom that it teaches you. And you have to think about how might that apply more specifically in your marriage or in your dating or even in your singleness. Okay, that's how scripture works. And so don't limit what the Bible has to teach us by thinking like that, by limiting it like that. Okay, that's point number one. Point number two, after you've gone through what does the Bible say about it, number two, what is the wisest choice? What is the wisest choice? And so I want to just give you some things that you should be thinking about and looking for in someone that you might consider pursuing or dating. Okay, and they, uh, a lot of C words here. So first one is character. Okay, look for character as opposed to something superficial like physical attraction. Um, Proverbs 31.30 says that charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Um, elsewhere in that chapter, it says, an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. And what is meant by excellent there? Well, according to the rest of the passage, it describes her character. It describes someone who is trustworthy, hardworking, Disciplined, thoughtful, strong, generous, courageous, dignified, independent, kind, and wise. Okay, so excellence is tied to character issues. And so questions that might be helpful for us to ask is, uh, how is this person's reputation? 
Are they well spoken of by other people? Uh, how, how serious is this other person about growing in their relationship with the Lord? How serious is this person about putting sin to death? Is this person in community? Are they being discipled by a more mature brother or sister? At the end of the day, the things that will hold the most weight in your relationship is not physical attractiveness. It's not the brands that you wear. It's not their sense of humor or even common interest. It's things that have to do with character. And if those are not the things that you are mostly concerned about, then I think that is revealing not of what this other person is lacking, but what you really care about in your own heart. Because we are naturally drawn towards those things that we value most. Right? And so if you're looking for these other things, I think that says something about your own heart, right? the things that you really care about. Um, as we're talking about character, just a real quick word about online dating. Maybe you guys are, are thinking about that. Uh, I think it's fine. Okay? I think it's if used wisely. That's, that's my disclaimer. And that includes recognizing some of its disadvantages. And I, I think there is uh, actually a lot of, of pretty di- big disadvantages. Right? Not only is it hard to get to know someone, someone's character online just because like, you have no existing friendship with them, but online dating often puts some of those other things, like physical attractiveness or interests or whatever it might be, as first and foremost, right? as opposed to character. And so um, like, don't judge other people if they are on apps and stuff like that. Um, I think it's okay, but just use it wisely right? and be humble about it. Okay, that's character. Um, community is our second word, community. Uh, dating nowadays, especially in this digital age, with the rise of social media and instant communication, has become this super isolated kind of thing. Um, and Prover- or the Bible speaks to that, Proverbs 18.1. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And that is such a true proverb, right? If you're alone, you're just going to do what you want. You are not hearing counsel that can give you like, wisdom to think through a decision. And so, as you think about just your own life, your relationship, do people know you? Do you guys open yourselves up to accountability and input from others? I think one very specific way to apply this is to get plugged into the life of the church. Um, I'm not saying that you have to attend the same church but I think it's probably one of the best contexts in which you are able to answer some of those questions that we just mentioned earlier about character, right? You are able to get to know someone's reputation. You're able to see their relationship with the Lord. Uh, you're able to fight sin together and see their prayer life together. It's in the context of the local church where you can find external accountability, where you can both be sitting under the same teaching and submitting to the same leadership and taught the same theology and take advantage of the wisdom of older brothers and sisters. I think one of the exciting things about being in the life of the church together is that you get this like front row seat to what God is doing in that other person's life outside of just your guys' relationship, right, in the context of this church family. And we'll talk more about this next week, but realize that you don't have to wait until you're dating to press, really press into the church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 32 and 33, it talks about the advantage that you have as a single person to devote your time and your energy into ministry. Okay, so like, make the most out of that. Don't wait until you like, really need the church when you're dating and you have a bunch of issues. Right? As a single person or non-dating person, like, do that now. Really press into the church. Build habits now that will eventually transfer over into a relationship or into marriage. Okay, so uh, character, community. Next is clarity. Clarity. Uh, Related to the increased kind of isolationism of dating is this danger of unresolved and unhealthy ambiguity in relationships. Um, Social media really encourages ambiguity, right? And you guys kind of know what I mean, right? If someone sends like an emoji, smiley face, you're like, what did they mean by that smiley face, right? Or if someone puts like a period or like dot, 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 you're like, what? Or if someone texts you, hey, I need to talk to you about something. By the way, you should never text that to someone, okay? Like I need to talk to you about something. That is, this is the worst. It's not helpful. Um, or like pictures, you know, like 
a picture of you and someone of the opposite gender shows up on Facebook and everyone's like, are they dating? What's going on? Right? Social media kind of encourages and it, there's like a risk of this like ambiguity. On top of that, you can make certain comments, you can say certain things, you can text certain things, and you can be less afraid or you think you're like more, uh, you can separate yourself from the ramifications of your words and, and the messages that you're sending. Well, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 4.15. He says that one of the marks that ought to characterize the lives of believers is speaking the truth in love to one another. Okay, again, that's just relational wisdom, general relational wisdom, but let's apply this to dating. And I think both components are necessary, right? Speaking the truth and speaking it in love. Now, what does that look like? Um, guys, be clear with your intentions. Okay, speak the truth. Don't lead people on because that can lead to disappointment. That can hurt people. It can lead to heartbreak. And this doesn't mean that you constantly have to, like, clarify the relationship at every single point of the way because that's kind of weird. Um, but seek to be others-minded in that way, right, by, by making sure that, that by providing clarity, by taking initiative, by, the, by being the one to go first and having certain conversations, that that is a way of loving sacrificially. Right? That's a way of thinking about others. Um, even in asking someone out, right, you risk rejection, but you serve your sister in Christ by letting her know where you stand so that she's not left guessing about what's going on. Okay, so guys, uh, lead by providing clarity in that way. Second, or girls, be gracious in how you turn others down. Okay, realize that it takes quite a risk to ask you out. And so speak the truth lovingly. Speak it graciously. Um, for all of us, seek to love one another and to put the interests of others before your own by pursuing honesty and clarity and intentionality in your relationships. The order should be clarity before intimacy, okay, and friendship before romance. Clarity before intimacy, friendship before romance. And one more thing about clarity. Realize that this whole process of dating, that really it is trying to move towards the goal of greater clarity. Okay, I don't think we realize that, right? Like we think of clarity as like the thing that happens at the beginning with the DTR, right? But realize that you're pursuing clarity of whether this is someone that you want to pursue marriage with. And I think we get that so twisted sometimes. In dating, we pursue intimacy, Right? We're like, oh, we're going to get married. We're going to like, take the next step. And so we got to be closer. We got to be more intimate. Well, that's dangerous. Right? Clarity needs to come first. When you prioritize that, then you are able to guard each other's hearts and guard intimacy for, when, uh, for marriage and, and later. Right? So pursue clarity. And this is true of all of dating, this whole process of dating. All right, next is commitment. Uh, Dating is interesting because, like we just said, you are pursuing clarity on this marriage question, right? And so uh, there is the option to break up, right? And, uh, like, yeah, it's true. That, that's always an option. You don't have to marry the person that you're dating. But obviously, there is this significant aspect of commitment. Okay, in a dating relationship, perhaps more so than many of your other friendships, you will encounter moments in which you wrong the other person in which, and also in which you were wronged by the other person. Okay, and I'm not saying that dating relationships are exclusively the kinds of contexts in which, like, this should be true. Um, I think scripture actually says that this should be true in many of our relationships, right? Because we're walking so closely with people, uh, because we're in people's lives, we should be wronged by others, and we should wrong others, right? That's just part of the Christian life. But what I'm saying is that I think in dating, this is going to come up more often, just naturally. How do you respond in those moments? Right? How do you respond to conflict? Uh, what do you do when things get hard? And when things get bad, of course, like I said, there's always that question, should we break up? And I think that's a question that takes a lot of thought, that takes a lot of wisdom and prayer and counsel from others. But even in your dating, are you practicing asking for forgiveness? Are you practicing recon seeking reconciliation with one another? Um, are you practicing some of the things we've been learning in James, right? Being slow to anger, being slow to speak, being quick to listen. Are you practicing using your words in a way that builds up and gives life rather than words that destroy and tear down? 
And so the gospel should shape us to practice commitment even in our dating. Uh, Christ was patient. Christ was uh, gracious with you. And so is that what your dating looks like? Right? Are you displaying those Christ-like qualities in working through when things get hard? Uh, just a couple encouragements with this specifically. The first one is this. Equip yourself now, whether you are dating or not dating, with a biblical perspective for how to understand conflict. Equip yourself now, whether dating or not dating, with a biblical perspective for how to understand conflict. Um, I think Pastor Kim on Sundays has done an incredible job equipping us from the pulpit with just truth to remember when life gets hard. Right? Whether that's suffering, whether that's conflict, whether that's just different hard parts of life. Uh, you, you might have heard him say, nothing passes into your life without first passing through the filter of God's love. Right? That's true. You got to remember that. You got to equip yourself with that when conflict comes. Nothing passes into your life without first passing through the filter of God's love, including the issues that might come up in your relationship. So they are God's way of loving you. Right? If God was, is sovereign and he didn't want that in your life, he wouldn't allow that in your life. But it's God's way of loving you. They are opportunities for you to recognize and repent of heart issues that might otherwise go unnoticed. And conflict is, oppor- is an opportunity to demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. And so don't treat conflict as this, like, surprising, unexpected thing that you need to get rid of ASAP, but rather as this God-given opportunity for you to grow and to help one another. Okay? So that's the first thing. Have this, equip yourself with a biblical understanding of conflict. And second, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can view each other not only as who they are today, but who they are becoming. Okay, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can view each other not only as who they are today, but who they are becoming. Now, we are all works in progress still. Right? You know that's true of your own life? Of course, that's going to be true of this other person. And yet, if they're a believer, we have the gospel hope that, that one day, that God will complete the work that he started in them. Right? And uh, that you have this opportunity in, during the season to walk with them through that, to see that, to see God working in their life in that way. Okay, so that should teach us to be patient and gracious uh, and forbearing. Um, last one is this, challenge to be better. Okay, challenge to be better. Uh, like we said in our discussion of marriage, Ephesians 5, marriage should help us to move more towards Christ-likeness. And so I think some questions to ask are, does being with this person motivate me to move toward Jesus? Am I better because of this person or in spite of this person? Is this person looking for me to motivate them in the same way? Uh, Ernie Baker is a biblical counselor. He's, he, uh, he says it like this. He says, run hard after Christ and then look around and see who is running with you. That is the kind of person to marry. Um, I, th- I think one way that we can check ourselves with this is by looking at how you're doing, not just according to the Bible's instructions for dating or relationships or marriage, but again, for all of life. Okay, and, and marriage is a super significant thing for sure. But listen to what Jesus says about marriage in Matthew twenty two thirty. He says, uh, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, marriage is temporary. Okay, that vow that you're going to make uh, if you get married on your wedding day, till death do us part, it ends at death. Right? And then after that, marriage is not going to exist anymore. There is no marriage in heaven. And I think that's, like, that's really weird for us to think about. Right? Um, but I don't think that should make marriage any less significant in our minds. After all, it's the picture that the Bible gives for Christ and the church. Uh, it's the picture for the consummation of everything when Christ returns for his bride. But this means that we view all of this with a greater picture in mind. We view it with the right perspective that our goal here as believers is not to marry and to be given over in marriage, though that might happen. What is our mission here? Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission. Right? Go and make disciples for Christ. Go and preach the gospel. Help others to come and know Jesus. Have you stopped to take time to consider your view of dating, your view of marriage, uh, or your relationship in light of the Great Commission? given to all believers? What is our timeline 
James 4.14, we'll get there uh, in a few weeks. It says that your life is but a mist. That your life is here for a second and then it's gone. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 39, he, he prays, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Again, have you stopped to take time to consider your view of dating, your view of marriage, or your relationship in light of the fleeting nature of this life? That might be kind of weird, right? You have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you're like, life is but a mist. I'm not going to be here. We're not going to be here long, right? But have you thought about that in the context of, like, the bigger picture of the Bible? All right, that's uh, number two. Number three, uh, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? This point is shorter. So whenever we use the word want, uh, we are talking about desire, right? Desire. And if you've been here at Lighthouse, you know that our desires are super significant, okay? And they are important because they are windows into our hearts. They show us uh, what we are trusting in and what we are hoping for. Now, don't get me wrong, attraction, romance, the desire to date, the desire to get married, those are all good things. They are blessings given to us by God to enjoy. But when the thought of being in a relationship or marriage in the future consumes your mind, when it is the object of your daydreams, when it like even stresses you out, then I think it might be time to pause and ask why. Right? Like why is this thing, like why am I constantly thinking about this? If you're dating, right, if this is like just all that you think about, if it's the lens through which you uh, view life through, And I think you need to ask yourself, what are you trying to get out of this relationship that Christ hasn't already provided for you? See, when our desires go wrong, this is important, we can actually end up hurting others because we place on them the burden of our hopes and expectations. Right? When we have inordinate desires on this relationship, we bring them into the relationship, we put them on this other person, and they were never meant to bear those things. They were never meant to be that kind of person in our lives. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, people get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. And so how do we grow in this? Are you daily seeking to be content in Christ? Okay, Psalm 9014, uh, the psalmist prays, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. If your relationship with Christ is lacking, if it's not there, then it will inevitably hurt your relationship. Okay, like Pastor Tim said last week, we, only, we only learn to love because of how he loved. Okay, so I'm not even talking about, like, doing Christian things. I'm not even talking about, like, reading the Bible or praying or going to church. I'm talking about enjoying your relationship with Christ, right? Do you, like, personally know or understand how God has loved you? Do you take time to enjoy the fact that you are a child of God, that you have salvation? Have you taken time to enjoy uh, God's forgiveness and grace and patience in your life? Right? Do you have that kind of enjoyable relationship with him? And it's out of that that we can see the other person rightly. Right? It's out of that that we can show those same things to this other person. Okay, that was a lot. Uh, and hopefully in your small group times in, in just a few minutes that they're helpful for you uh, in thinking through some of those ideas more deeply. Um, but let me just say this. This stuff doesn't apply to you only if you're dating or only if you're married or even just like only if you're thinking about dating or getting married. Maybe for some of you, you have no desire to do either of those things. And that's fine, right? And uh, we'll talk more about this next week with singleness, but uh, reality is we should never feel entitled to dating or we should never feel entitled to marriage. They're significant, but they are not supreme in God's big picture. But here's why this applies to you, okay? You probably know others who are thinking about dating. You probably know others who are married. Right? And so maybe one day you're asked to give counsel, or maybe you are called to even just be a friend to them. And so that's why this is important for you, okay? even if you don't want to date, even if you don't want to get married. 
One final encouragement. If you feel like you fall short with this stuff, then join the club, right? We all do. This is hard. Uh, but I want to go back to Ephesians 5, um, 25 and 27 again. This is what Paul says. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So this was in our first point. Paul is talking about the roles of husband and wife, right? Joyful submission, sacrificial love, and leadership. But don't miss this part. He's also talking about us. Right? He's talking about Christ's love for the church, for all of us, for believers. And so, yeah, Ephesians 5 teaches us the roles in marriage, but Ephesians 5 also teaches us that Christ Jesus has given himself up for us and that day by day, he is sanctifying us, he is cleansing us, he is washing us and preparing us for that last day when he is going to present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Okay, so if you heard all this stuff and you're not where you want to be when it comes to this stuff, then Ephesians 5 says, Jesus is going to make sure you get there. Right? Because he's, he's washing you, he's sanctifying you, he's preparing you as his perfect bride. So let's pray together. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that in the gospel we have a model, a picture for what relationships should look like. All kinds of relationships. Uh, but even more specifically in marriage, and even as we pursue marriage in dating. And so I pray, Father, that that was helpful for us. I pray that we would be humble before your word, um, that this wouldn't just be a bunch of ideas that uh, is, is good advice, but really this would be you forming the way that we think, giving us a biblical worldview of how to think about um, this significant type of relationship that you've given to us as a gift. And so bless our small group time together. Uh, we love you, God. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.